as we start our time together, I want to share with you a story about a time when I was younger. Uh, I'm from a small town in the mountains of North Carolina, and it was there that I uh, got to know a lot of people. Whenever you're in a small town, you get to know people, right? People know you, you know them. And specifically, I had a unique avenue to get to know people because I worked at a small restaurant during my summer months in high school, you know, to save up a little money for school and uh, to hopefully bank some savings for the future. Um, You can ask my brother who's here today. He also worked at that same restaurant for a time. Uh, I did not save save up as much money as I was hoping to save, but that was the gist of why I was doing what I was doing. And at the same time, too, when I was in high school, my mind was focused very much on the future and specifically on achieving success. I wanted to be successful. I wanted stability. I wanted wealth. These were the things that the world were telling me all the time were what were valuable and what I should put my heart and my mind and my, my, my energies to pursuing. And so I was a believer at that time. I do believe I had made a profession of faith in Christ, but I wasn't mature in my faith. And so my life had not yet been completely reoriented around what God would have for me to do. And so this is what my mind and my heart and my attentions were focused on. So I'm working at this restaurant. I'm getting to meet people. And one of the great joys of meeting some of the people in my hometown where I was is that it was filled with people who would travel from all over the uh, the country, specifically from Florida and Georgia, who were very successful but chose that town to vacation in during the summer months. So I often crossed paths with people who were successful by all the standards that I had in my mind. And so needless to say, I thought this was a great opportunity to learn from them, to see what type of counsel they could provide me. And sure enough, there were a few families who would do that for me. And one such family, I'll just mention the man's name because in particular he stands out. His name was Mike. Mike was uh, in a very successful field. He had made a lot of money and he was one of these folks who was vacationing up in the town, coming to the restaurant. He was a regular, saw him every week. You could probably ask me and my brother, and we can tell you what his order is. He even liked to sit in the same part of the restaurant every time he came. And so he would come, I would strike up conversation, and he started taking an interest in me. He would ask me questions about how I was working hard to make it into university so that I could have success and other types of counsel. Well, I wasn't prepared for what the Lord was going to do in my first year of university, I had all of his counsel in my mind, and I had my own ambitions in my mind. And so I go to university at UNC Chapel Hill, and I registered for a degree program and started taking classes towards the end of getting a career that I thought would provide for me the success and the stability that I so longed for. But nothing could have prepared me for what the Lord did in his kindness in bringing me to the Baptist campus ministry. And it was there that I started to grow in my faith more deeply And in particular, was challenged to think about my worldview and where my aims were focused. There was one evening in particular where BCM hosted a group of missionaries from China who were coming to share their story about how they were being used by God to spread the gospel. And it was the first time that I had ever really been encountered with the reality that there were people around the world who did not know the name of Jesus and in fact had no access to the name of Jesus unless someone got on a plane and took it to them. So I was struck immediately. You see, I was taking Chinese as one of my classes. I had no idea how the Lord was intending to use that in my life. But I was taking Chinese, and I'm hearing about the need in this country, and I started asking myself, could this be something the Lord would want me to do? Would he want me to be a missionary? So fast forward, I come back, 
I'm back at the restaurant working that summer after my freshman year, and sure enough, I run into the same family who had taken an interest in me. They come, and they uh, exchange pleasantries with me about how things are going, and I start to tell them, yeah, I'm taking these classes. I'm pursuing a, you know, a this and that. I want to do an internship. All the things that he was recommending I would do. He was so excited to hear that, gave me some counsel. And he said, so are you still interested in doing what you had planned to do? Namely, I told him about my career ambitions. And I said, well, you know, Mike, what's interesting is I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to do anymore. You see, deep down, I was still wrestling with what I encountered that night at BCM. And he asked me, so what, what are you wanting to do? What's changed? And in his mind, I could tell he thought maybe it was just another career path, perhaps another opportunity to achieve success as the world defines it. But I told him, I said, well, Mike, what's interesting is I think God may be calling me to be a missionary to China. And I'll never forget the look of incredulity on his face. He looked at me puzzled. And I'll never forget the words that came out of his mouth next. He looked at me and said, now why on earth would you want to go and waste your life on something like that? And it hit me. It hit me because in that moment, I had not yet clearly discerned what the Lord's calling was for my life, and I was still working out, what did you want me to do, Lord? But it also hit me because if I'm honest with him and I'm honest with you in this moment, back then, deep down, I think a part of me agreed with him. Was being obedient to whatever the Lord would call me to do worth Losing all the things that we had worked so hard, him and I, to focus our attentions on? These are the types of questions I was wrestling with. Was it worth it to give my life in whatever way the Lord would be calling me to advance the gospel? And it's this question that I think we all have to wrestle with because we're under constant assault from the world, the flesh, and the devil every moment to question our commitment to Christ. And that's why I love this text, John chapter 12, and we're going to look specifically at verses 23 through 26, because I believe there are three truths in this text that equip us to give an answer to that question. Is it worth it to follow Christ with the entirety of our lives? And those three truths that we're going to see that flow straight from this text are these. One, our salvation was purchased through dying. Our salvation was purchased through dying. Secondly, Christ's commission is completed by dying. Christ's commission is completed by dying. And thirdly, eternal glory awaits us after dying. So let's consider the first truth. Our salvation was purchased through dying. Take a look at the text. I'm going to read verse 23. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, as we step into this text, it's helpful to be aware of a little bit of the context. Jesus is entering the final phase of his ministry. He'd already done wonderful miracles. He'd gotten the attention of the crowds, and he's gotten the attention of the religious leaders. Um, There's a lot of amazing things he's done, powerful things he's proclaimed. For example, in chapter 11, we saw where Jesus raises Lazarus powerfully from the dead, and now the Passover festival is coming, and Jesus makes his triumphal entry, and we see that in John 12, verse 12. And he comes riding into Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover, and he does so riding on a colt, 
of a donkey. This fulfills a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is entering this last phase of his ministry. He knows what he's about to do. But what's interesting, though, is all along the lines of his ministry, we see another theme developing as well. And that theme is that the disciples that surrounded him, and the religious leaders to a degree, were confused about Jesus. Take a look at uh, verse 16 of chapter 12. After he comes riding in, fulfilling this prophecy, it says his disciples did not understand these things at first. You see, there was confusion surrounding two aspects of who Jesus is and what he was to do. There was confusion about his mission, and there was confusion about his timing. What do I mean by confusion about his mission? Well, um, as Jesus is going through his ministry and the disciples are acknowledging him for who he is and learning about who he is and what he's coming to do, there was this expectation that Jesus was this king, but that he was going to be this wonderful, powerful, earthly conqueror. The disciples and the Jews were looking forward to this Messiah figure who would come riding in powerfully, would overthrow the Romans, and would establish his rule on earth, restoring Israel to all of its former glory. Now, all along the lines, the disciples are looking for these moments. Is this the time when he's going to do this? Is this the time when he's going to ride in and he's going to powerfully do it? So then they see Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey not exactly a picture of, uh, you know, a vast military conquest, and so they're confused. What is his mission? Now, you may be wondering, though, well, hadn't Jesus been telling him his mission all along? Well, yes, but they didn't fully understand it. He had foretold about his sufferings. Even the Old Testament, as we were reminded last week, foretold that the Messiah would suffer. Places like in Isaiah 52 and 53, where God makes very plain that his suffering servant would have to suffer in order to purchase salvation for his people. Jesus himself in Matthew 16 says that he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. And on the third day be raised. You may remember after that moment, Jesus pulled, I mean, uh, Peter, excuse me, pulls Jesus aside and tells him, surely not, Lord, this will never happen to you. Why does Peter make that proclamation? Because he's confused. This doesn't make sense. Why would someone who's supposed to be this powerful king go to suffer and die? And to be fair, even Jesus' usage of the title Son of Man evokes a powerful image. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So you have this image, this son of man who's coming to be this victor. But here again, Jesus is riding in on a donkey. What is his mission? What is he doing? No grand army, no grand rebellion. There's this humility to what Jesus is doing. But secondly, there's a confusion about his timing as well. You see, mixed in with confusion about what Jesus was doing was misunderstandings from the disciples' perspective about when Jesus ought to do them. For example, even at the wedding at Cana, you may remember when Jesus is uh, there at the wedding, they run out of wine. 
who is it that comes to Jesus and asks him to intervene? It's his mother, right? She basically shows up and says, hey, you need to do something about this. What's very interesting is Jesus responds to his own mother in that moment saying, my hour has not yet come. Jesus wasn't ready to reveal what it is that he came to do. We see it again in John chapter 7 when Jesus' own brothers want him to go down uh, into Judea to celebrate the Feast of Booths and to make a scene, to draw attention to himself. And Jesus responds to his brothers in that moment saying, my hour has not yet come. In John 7 and 8, we see that the efforts of the religious leaders to arrest Jesus are thwarted precisely because it says Jesus' hour had not yet come. So there's this question, what is Jesus up to? We don't quite understand. And then secondly, when he is getting up to it, when is he going to do it? This question of timing. And that's why John 12, 23 is this huge pivotal point in the gospel of John and for our consideration of the text this morning, because Jesus finally turns to them and answers. He says, the hour has come. And the hour has come for what? Look again at the text. It says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now pause. If you're the disciples, dare I say it, their attitude at this moment is probably like, okay, now we're cooking. The hour has come. The Son of Man, this wonderful victor that's been promised, he's going to step into his glory. Now, you know, maybe we didn't get what was happening before, but oh man, Jesus is gearing up. We're ready to go. It's time for the Lord to step into his glory. And this is where very powerfully Jesus expands yet again on the nature of his mission and on the nature of the timing. Because Jesus goes on to say this parable, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it what? Bears much fruit. Jesus is setting his disciples up to understand that his glorification was going to come in a way they would not expect. Jesus' glorification was going to come through death. You see, Jesus had clarified his mission. You remember John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will have eternal life. John three seventeen goes on to make it even clearer, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is giving this picture of what it would mean for him to be glorified. It was gonna, he was going to be glorified through fulfilling the mission that God the Father had entrusted to him. And how was that going to look? It was going to look like sacrifice. You see, Jesus was going to be the king, but his kingdom was going to be different than any kingdom of this world. It was going to be a kingdom that was going to be won in the great paradox of the Christian faith by death. And you may be asking, well, why did Jesus have to die? That's a great question. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, you see, the Bible makes very plain that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And a part of that wonderful creation was man, mankind, you and me. People that he did not need, but that he chose to create to have relationship with him and to worship him. We were supposed to be his image bearers in the world. What does that mean? It means that all the qualities of God in some way some of them, uh, not all the qualities, were not sovereign, things like that, but many of the qualities of God were meant to be on display through our relationship and sacrificial service done unto Him in the world. We were supposed to live in perfect unity with God and to work and to keep the garden 
and to spread his glory throughout the entire world. But if you read after the creation account, you see very quickly things spiraled in the wrong direction because mankind in our sinful rebellion, in our pride, we turned against God's will and against God's way and we fell into sin by choosing to live for our own plans and our own pride and our own glory rather than His. And there was a great cost for that sin, that rebellion done against God. That cost was death. The punishment due to us because of our sin is death. Romans 6 makes it plain. The wage of sin is death. Why death? Well, because God is holy and He is just. He can't allow rebellion and sin into His presence. This people that He had created for His glory had rebelled against Him. He can't allow that sin into His presence. And so the wage of sin is death, not only physical death in this world as a penalty for our sin, but even more powerful to just really wrap our heads around, eternal death, eternal separation from God forever, eternal conscious torment, suffering under the penalty of our sin. That's why we need God to intervene on our behalf. And God had a plan to save his people for himself. The plan was this gospel message that you've already heard sung and prayed about and celebrated this morning. God had a plan to bring about a savior who would be able to stand in the gap between God and sinful humanity. And he would make a way for us to have our unity and our fellowship with God restored. Not just in this life, but forever. Eternal life. Full forgiveness of sins and full unity with God forever. We needed a substitute. We needed someone like us who was fully God, who was able to bear under the full wrath of God for sin, but somebody who was like us, who could identify with us and stand in our place. That's why I think Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. It was a claim to deity, yes, but it was also a reminder of his mission. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived a perfect life earning a righteousness we could never earn. And then he would go to the cross and he would bear the death that we deserve to pay so that in him we may have his righteousness and be forgiven of all of our sin. So why did Jesus have to do all this? Well, because God's aim is to bring glory to himself. And very powerfully, God chose to bring glory to himself through saving a people for himself. That's how God has chosen to bring glory to himself. You know, the word glory, I like to define it this way, steal it a little bit from Andy. Glory is the radiant display of God's character and attributes on full display for the praise of who he is and what he's done. There is no more powerful display of God's character and his attributes than the redemption of a people through, for himself through his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, all of the attributes of God were on full display. His holiness, His power, His glory, and His love. All of it was on full display as Jesus bore under the wrath that we deserved. That's the steep cost. God was willing to sacrifice His own Son for sinners like you and me. Jesus knew this mission. John six thirty-eight through 40 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will 
of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Unless you think this was some simple thing for Jesus to do, it wasn't. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And Jesus was confronted with this mission. The question arises, will he obey it? Will Jesus, as he looks at the cost of our sin, separation from God, will the second member of the Trinity walk through in his humanity and bear that penalty that we deserved? Look down at verse uh, 27 of John 12 and listen to Jesus' words. He says, now is my soul troubled? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? pause there. My mind goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where it says Jesus was sweating great drops of blood as he was thinking about the cost that he was about to pay for us. But he says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And look what Jesus' radical focus is in verse 28. Father, what? Glorify your name. Jesus knew the mission. The kingdom of God would be built. God's glory would be on display, but there was only one way to do it. It was the sacrifice of his only begotten son so that anybody who would look to him could have eternal life. And so Jesus uses this agricultural analogy. Just like a seed of wheat goes into the ground, it has to do what? It has to die. The shell has to be torn off. But what happens when that seed is watered and when it's nurtured and when it grows? It grows up into a plant that produces many, many seeds. Through the one death, the multitude could have life. That's the image Jesus is giving to us and to his disciples. And very powerfully wrapped up in this image as well is the reality that Jesus didn't stay dead for long. Because it says in Scripture as well that after three days, he what? He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And what did this prove? This proved that Jesus' sacrifice in our place was both pleasing and acceptable to God. I can't say it any better than what Philippians 2, 6 through 10 says. Hear these words. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God. How do we know? Because he was raised in power from the dead, and then God exalted him to his right hand with all rule and with all authority. We can look to Jesus now ascended at the right hand of God and have hope. Our sin debt has been paid and any who look upon the cross and trust in what Jesus did on their behalf can have not only full forgiveness of their sins, but eternal life in him. Isn't that powerful? That Jesus would do that for us? That's why I think it says, I don't think it says, I know it says, That for the joy set before him, Jesus did what? He went to the cross, despising its shame. 
He knew the cost, but he also knew the reward. You see, brothers and sisters, our salvation was purchased through dying. Our salvation was purchased through dying. And Jesus is communicating that to any who would come after him, that the salvation required death. It's the great paradox of the Christian faith. But the work was not done at Jesus' death and his resurrection. No, there was still more to be done. And I believe that, yes, Jesus' parable of the seed gives us a description of what Jesus did on our behalf to win our salvation, but it also provides a pattern for how the knowledge of Jesus' salvation would spread to the ends of the earth, which leads us to truth number two, Christ's commission is completed by dying. You see, central to Jesus' commitment to die in our place was this glory of the Lord. But here's the thing. God said that his glory would need to go out to the ends of the earth. We have the end of the story, Revelation 7, 9. John looks and he says, After this I looked and before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's this vision that God wants to save a people from himself, for himself, yes, but that people, he wants it to be spread out over all the world. It's the fulfillment of that original creation mandate that we were given to spread the image of his glory throughout all the world. And so how is that vision going to become a reality? How will the nations be gathered before the throne of God on that glorious day? Well, this is where it's critical for us to see a very important part of our walk with Christ. You see, we were not given the gospel so that it would end with us. We were given the gospel so that it would be spread through us. Andy preached on this just a couple weeks back from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We know it, but I'm going to read it again. He says, and Jesus came to them, this is after his resurrection, to the disciples, and he says, all authority, that heavenly divine authority has, on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives them this command, go therefore and make disciples of where? All nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This was Jesus' parting words. He purchased our salvation, yes, but then in a an amazing reality, he's entrusting the advance of that message to his people. So to make it real for us this morning, brothers and sisters, you may not realize it, but God, if he has saved you by his grace, if you've looked to Christ and accepted the forgiveness of your sins, he wants you, as we even heard earlier, to participate in the spread of his glory to all nations. That's what he wants for your life. That's what he's calling you to. I can't say it any better than the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Yes, we are made new in Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's the gospel. But then he did what? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, to us, the message of reconciliation. He goes on to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
You see, when God saves us, He doesn't just give us a new life. He gives us a completely new purpose. And what's that purpose? It's participating in the advance of His glory, both here and around the whole world. John 12, 24 through 25, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth that dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We're called to participate in that death and fruit bearing unto the glory of God until the day when Christ returns. So whether or not we walk in obedience to this new mission, this new purpose, hinges on a question. Are we willing to die like Jesus was? What do we mean by that? How do we carry out this purpose for the glory of Christ in the world? Well, that's where we come to verse 25. Take a look at it with me here. He gives that analogy, that parable. And then he says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 25, I think, wraps up for us three things. There's three kind of truths that kind of flow from verse 25 that are helpful for us as we consider how do we carry out this purpose that God's given to us. Those three things are a warning, an instruction, and then a reminder. So let's start with the warning. What's the warning that Jesus is trying to get at in verse 25? Well, look again. He gives two things that we need to be mindful of, loving our life and then loving our life in this world. Loving our life and then loving our life in this world. Why does Jesus choose to bring these two things up as it relates to the fulfillment of our divine purpose in Christ? Well, I think he's getting at the reality, and here's the warning, that our affections for Jesus and our attention for Jesus' mission are under constant assault all the time from both ourself, our own sinful pride, and the world. So you take a look at that first phrase, whoever loves his life, What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think he's getting at the fact that even though we are saved in Christ, yes, our sinful rebellion constantly is welling up and challenging Christ's rule over our hearts. We have our own plans. We have our own ambitions. We make for ourselves things that we want to walk in, things that we want to do. And it's not that all those things are bad. No, but they become bad, they become an idol whenever we do them devoid of considering what Christ would have us do. And so we're under constant assault from our own sin nature that we're battling every day to do the works that Christ has called us to do. But instead we do works that benefit ourselves. And we're too focused on ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the reason why Jesus dwells on this is because that's nothing short of rebellion. To elevate our own pride and to elevate our own ambitions and to not even ask Jesus to be a part of that equation is nothing more than sinful rebellion that stands directly opposed to what God is trying to do in your life and in the world. But it's not just the sin that wells up from within. It's also the world. Jesus is saying whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He uses this phrase that we need to hate our lives in this world because the world also stands opposed to what Jesus is doing. What does he mean by this? Well, it's very clear from Scripture that the world is used as an analogy or as a phrase that captures a truth that it's a system, it's an it's a order of governance that stands opposed to Jesus and His glory. You see phrase, uh, passages like 1 John 5.19, it says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It indicates that in the world, there's this whole system that exists that stands opposed 
with a malevolent intent, purpose to allure us away from Jesus and what he'd have us do. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, John says very powerfully, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, these things are not from the Father, but they're from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus is saying you can't have your own selfish ambition and you can't have the world and have me. He's requiring a radical reorientation of our affections and our attention. So he's giving the disciples this warning. Don't allow the world and the flesh to pull you away from what I'm calling you and commanding you to do. So what's the remedy for this though? How can we take the warning to heart and then walk in obedience to Christ? Well, this is where Jesus gives us an instruction. He gives us an instruction that's wrapped up in this. He says, whoever loves his life in this world loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does it mean to, to, to rightfully hate our lives in this world? He doesn't mean hate it in an absolute sense, but he wants us to elevate our affections for him in such a way that by comparison, everything else can be seen as hate. That we are so enraptured with who He is and what He's called us to do that everything else fades away. A good parallel passage to this is Matthew 16. As a matter of fact, flip there if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 16. You may remember the scene I alluded to earlier. Peter makes this wonderful declaration of who Jesus says. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Peter, just a few verses later, whenever Jesus tells them about the death He's going to have to die and the suffering He's going to have to endure... Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, that you're going to have to do these things. And then Peter is rebuked by Jesus. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you do not know, uh, your mind is uh, set on the things of man, not on the things of God. And then we have that powerful declaration of what discipleship, what the cost of discipleship looks like for those who would entrust their lives to Christ. Look at Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples after this scene unfolded, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. What is Jesus getting at there? This is the instruction for us. The way that we can protect our hearts from being allured away from Jesus and his mission in this world while we're trying to live for his glory is we have to die daily. We have to die daily. We have to die to ourselves. What does that mean? It means when that sinful ambition rises, we take it to the cross and we say, Jesus, not my way, but your way be done. What would you have me do, Lord? It means whenever we are lured by the world into sin or to pursue the ambitions that the world wants us to pursue, we die to those things. And we look to Jesus, Him crucified on the cross, and we say, Father, in light of that sacrifice, what would you have me sacrifice for your glory? And brothers and sisters, this is so important. We can't miss this. Because if we miss this, 
hear me carefully, if we miss this truth, the gospel will never spread either to our nations or to the nations from First Baptist Church, Durham. The gospel simply will not spread if we are so enraptured with our own lives and our own pursuits or the pursuits of this world that we're unwilling to die to all of those things for the sake of obeying Christ wherever he calls. So we have the warning. We have the instruction. And wrapped up in that instruction is the cost. But then Jesus also, I think, in these verses is giving us a reminder. What's that reminder? The cost should be expected. Because that's what Jesus did. John 15, 18 through 21, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Then he goes on to say, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Paul says as much when he exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus prepares his followers in John 16, He says, I have said these things to you. I've reminded you of these things, that in me you may have peace. He goes on to say, in this world, not you might have trouble. You could have trouble. If you follow me, you might be asked to maybe some trouble. He says, in this world, you what? Will have trouble. But then he goes on to say, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So how does this play out in our lives? How can we be faithful in the patterns that God is calling us to? Well, Jesus goes on to make that plain as well. Look at John 12, 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Where Jesus is, that's where we ought to be. Where Jesus is, that's where his servants will go. That's where they will follow him. Well, if you're like me, you're looking at that and you're asking the question, well, where is Jesus? Where is he? Because I want to be where he is, Right? If Jesus is going about doing the work of his Father, reconciling people for himself, we need to be asking the question, where is Jesus? And brothers and sisters, this is another thing that confused the disciples because the types of places that Jesus went in his ministry and the types of people that he associated with didn't make any sense, at least to them. So what were those types of people? Who did Jesus associate with in his earthly ministry? He associated with the poor and with the lowly. He served the lame and the lepers, outcasts from the Jewish society that had no semblance of unity with their own people because of the ailments that, were, uh, that they suffered. Jesus was seen with the woman at the well, a serial adulterer, and he was seen ministering to her alone. These were all scenes that would not have made sense for this conquering king-type Messiah person. Why was Jesus doing this? He was setting a pattern for what he would want his disciples to do. If we're going to serve like Jesus did, we need to be where Jesus was and where he is. And where is Jesus? He is everywhere that the lowly and the outcast and the downtrodden of society and everyone else in between, the, the rich and the, and the wealthy and the prosperous, they're not excluded from this promise either. But he is everywhere that his glory is on display, where his people are serving for the praise of his name and for the advance of his gospel. How do we know this? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Remember what he said, Behold, I am with you where? 
I am with you always to the end of the age. So what does that look like in our context? Well, God's given us the joy of being in a local church context where we can have patterns of ministry. You've heard us talk many a times about using your gifts and abilities, whatever resources the Lord has entrusted to you to go being about the work of this great gospel advance. And that's going to look different in all of our lives. But when we ask the question, where is Jesus? I know where Jesus is in many cases. He's with us in the ESL classroom on Wednesday nights when we're ministering to internationals from all over the world who've never heard the name of Christ. He's with the volunteers at the Caring Center on Fridays and Saturdays from 10 to 12 who are ministering to the poor in the community, praying with them and sharing the gospel. He's with people who go out into our city to proclaim the gospel to those who don't want to hear it, but they're being obedient to do it anyway. And there are many other types of patterns. He's on the college campuses proclaiming the gospel to intellectuals who have no need for Jesus, or at least they don't think they do, but he's placed all of our college students in a context to proclaim his name. That's where Jesus is. He's also on the mission field, working through people that we've sent out from this church body to make his name known among the nations. And this is going to look different for all of us, brothers and sisters. We're not all called to the same pattern of ministry, but we are called to be faithful. We're called to be obedient in our love for Christ to make his gospel known. So maybe you're a wife at home with children and you're thinking, how can I play a part? Well, invest in your children for the glory of God. Proclaim to them the gospel and equip them, if God would be pleased to save them, to be bold ambassadors for Jesus wherever he calls them to go. Pray for missions. And when you're at the park or the playground or the pool, the three Ps, that I often find myself with with my children, the park, the playground, the pools, look for opportunities to proclaim Christ, to share the only hope that, this, that the world needs. Maybe you're a college student, like I mentioned moments ago. Consider the fact that God has placed you with a purpose on your campus, and that purpose is to make His glory known among the nations. Perhaps you are being called to missions. Perhaps you need to obey that call in your life even today. The point is not the exact nature of our individual callings. That's between you and the Lord. The point is, are we going to be obedient to whatever the Lord calls us to do? And Jesus makes it plain that we're going to experience trial in this world because the world stands opposed to him and his mission, but he is equipping us and telling us that we need to be ready to bear that reproach. Why? So that his glory can go out to all the world. And so there's this question of willingness. Will we die to the world? Will we die to ourselves? And will we live, therefore, under Christ? John 14, 15 through 17, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's commanded us to love God and to love our neighbor for the glory of God. And if you're struggling this morning thinking, well, I haven't been doing that, I don't even know where to begin. Be encouraged by these next verses that also flow from Christ's mouth. He says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper. Do you know who that helper is? The Holy Spirit. And remember, too, Jesus doesn't love you because of your works. Jesus loved you when you were an enemy of his. But he loves you so much that he wants you to be a part of his glory going out into the world. So he wants us to be rich with those good works. And so we have that truth, number one, our salvation was purchased by dying. We have truth, number two, the commission is completed by dying. And then lastly, truth, number three, eternal glory awaits us after dying. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Very briefly on this point, I just want you to meditate on the reality that Jesus says his Father will honor you in eternity for what you do unto him. Isn't that amazing? That when you do bear that reproach at work for sharing the gospel or you willingly die to yourself and die to the world, God sees it. He takes account for it. And he will honor you. And even though all of that was given by God in the first place anyway, he still delights in seeing his children willingly sacrifice for him just like his son did. It pleased the Father when Jesus sacrificed. So too does it please the Father when we are willing to sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 3, don't have time to read it here, but you can read it later. It speaks of us being rewarded for works done by faith that build Christ's kingdom. And brothers, sisters, we have eternity to enjoy with Christ. Is this not what motivated Paul to endure suffering in this world? I can't think of any person, Andy and I talked about this earlier this week, who's borne more suffering than the Apostle Paul. He bore under stonings and beatings and imprisonments every place he went. But amazingly, his commentary on all that is found in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says all these things are light and momentary afflictions, preparing for him an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. You see, brothers, sisters, Romans 8, 16 makes it plain that we are co-heirs with Christ. So when we join in his sufferings and participate with him, we also enjoy his reward, resurrection, eternal life, and the glory of casting our crowns before the Lord with whatever sacrifice we were called to make for him. As we meditate on these themes in closing, I want to leave you with a story that I heard recently at um, my graduation ceremony, actually, at Southeastern this spring. Dr. Aiken was giving us a charge as um, people who recently received our MDivs to go out into the world and to obey Christ wherever he would call. And he told the story of an IMB missionary by the name of Karen Watson. Karen Watson was um, one of the ones who gave up the comforts of this life to serve Jesus wherever he would call her. And in her case, Jesus called her to serve in Iraq. And in 2004, she was killed by militants when they ambushed her vehicle. She was actually on her way to setting up a mobile water purification plant uh, in order to be a blessing to those people, serving them in the same way that Jesus calls us to serve in order to have a vehicle or a platform for proclaiming the love of Christ. But what made her case interesting is that when she died, she had left a letter behind And I want to read you just briefly her letter, her words now. She writes this to her two pastors. She said, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. And in regards to any funeral service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold. Preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. She then goes on to describe the missionary heart when she says, care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some, uh, than some think is practical. And expect more than some think is possible. Listen to these words. She says, I was called not to comfort or to success, 
but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too and my church family in his care, Karen. Do you not hear the tone of victory in her voice? Do you not hear the tone of joy? Do you think Karen Watson is regretting right now how she sacrificed everything for the sake of Christ's glory? Do you think in a billion years from now, Karen Watson's going to regret how she used her life for Christ's glory? I don't think so. I don't think so. So the question for us is, do you agree with Karen when she says there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him? You know, when I was younger, I did not have the answer to that gentleman's question at the restaurant. Why on earth would you go and want to waste your life on something like that? But now we all have the answer to that question, and we can answer with confidence. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Our salvation was purchased through dying. Christ's commission is completed by dying. Glory awaits us after dying. And to use that old cliche, Christ never said it would be easy, just said it'd be worth it. So let's live for his glory no matter the cost. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the exhortation that Jesus gives us to be willing to live for you in whatever way you would call us to. I pray, Father, that today you would just renew our passion to put aside our own selfish ambitions if they exist and to put aside the allure of the world and to think, what would Christ have me do? Lord, for any of those who are here today who have not yet placed their faith in Christ, I pray that you would work powerfully in their hearts to call them to repentance, to see Jesus' victory over sin and death and the eternal life that he promises for all of his followers, and to today commit firstly to dying to themselves in the way of trusting Jesus for their salvation. But then for all of us who have called Christ our Savior, I pray you would help us to walk as he walked. The question is, where is Christ? And the question is also, where are we? Help us, Father, to be where you are until your kingdom comes and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.